We're carrying on in 2 Samuel. Let me read to you. Uh, We've jumped past. We're now at the end of the Civil War, and I'll backtrack with you before we start the sermon itself, but let's read 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 19, all the way to chapter 19, verse 7. Okay? So 18, 19, up to 19, 7. It's on the board. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemy, hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to, to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the, running, uh, it, sorry, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the for, uh, for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried, out with, cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. 
series. A powerful story. And um, let me fill in the gaps. When we left off last week at, in chapter 15, uh, David had just heard that Absalom had announced himself to be king. And now, of course, we've come to where it's over. So what happens in between? Well, this is what happens. David hears the news, and he immediately gathers up the few who are loyal to him, and he leaves the city. But as he leaves Jerusalem, he leaves behind five people, aside from his harem. He leaves ten people from his harem, but he leaves five men behind as well as spies. Two of them are high priests. It's strange, but in the time of David, he had two high priests, Abiathar and Zadok. He leaves them to be spies and to guard the ark. And then he, they each have one son, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. And those two are to work as runners. They're to take any, any news that, David, that the high priest can find and deliver it to David as spies. And the last person he leaves is a man named Hushai, who is one of his counselors and advisors. And he says, you stay and become a mole. You get in close, get a, really close to Absalom's inner party. And you work to offer bad advice wherever you can to, to hold him off. So David is still pretty shrewd, even though he's getting older and not, maybe not as uh, diligent as he once was. He leaves, and as he leaves the city, Absalom enters the city. Absalom then does what guys who want the crown do. They occupy the city and the palace. They sleep with the royal harem, and that was a sign of ownership of the crown. So he does this, and then he decides, now we have to deal with my father's army. What are we going to do? And Ahithophel, David's good, wise advisor, offers Absalom really good advice. He tells him, attack him now. Take a small group of people because he's running away, he's tired, he's been marching. Catch him off guard and wipe him out. Do it quickly because your father is a good warrior. And Absalom says, okay, that's pretty good. Hushai, what do you think? Hushai offers terrible advice, but it tickles the ego of Absalom. He says, no, no, you don't want to catch him off guard because your dad's like a caged lion and his mighty men. They'll fight. So what you want to do is you get all of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Get as big an army as you can and you meet him in open battle because then you'll have the glory of having defeated him in open battle. And the arrogant Absalom says, that's a great idea. So with that, Ahithophel actually goes off and commits suicide because his advice wasn't taken. Probably a little dramatic, but that's okay. <laughs> Hushai then sends news through those two sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, to David and says, the jig is up. Be ready because the army will come to fight. David gets the news. He then takes the army to the northeast, well, for your perspective up here, over the Jordan. And he, he's in a town called Mahanaim. And he, he sets up camp there and he prepares for a full battle. And Absalom follows and they come face to face. When this battle is about to take place, David does something that the narrator wants us to know. The narrator says very clearly that everybody heard him tell all of the commanders, deal gently with Absalom. Don't kill him. I want him alive. That's important because Joab is going to not do that. So he splits up his army with three people. Joab, Joab's brother, who if you've been reading along with us, who is a brutal but very, a guy you want on your side in a war, named Abishai. Abishai, Joab have parts, and then uh, Ittai, the Gittite, so a guy from Gath, probably somebody David met when he was hiding out in Gath from Saul. They lead three parts of the army. They fight a war in the valley called the Forest of Ephraim. Well, for Israel, a densely forested place. Northern Canada, not so dense. But it's densely for them. They fight a battle. David wins. His, his troops win. David does not fight. 
he is waiting at the gate of Mahanaim for news, just like Eli was waiting for news about his sons going off to war. When this battle is over, Joab hears that Absalom is caught in a tree. He's kind of stuck in this thick part of the forest, and he's vulnerable. Ahimaaz has a debate with somebody and says, or sorry, Joab has a debate and says, you know what? I don't care what the king said. Rebels must die. And he goes and he kills Absalom. With that, we now are where we just started picking up and reading. Okay? So that's where we, now we're here. The news is the war is over, but Absalom is dead. Who's going to take this news to David? And when you read this story, even as I was reading it to you, you probably took a side. You probably decided already, and maybe you're an older Christian, you've done this for a long time. You think you know which one is right. Is Joab right to push David and say, you're a king, stand up? Or is David right to be mourning for his son? If you're thinking one or the other is right, you're wrong. Because they're both rightish and wrongish. Both actually wrong. And I'll explain that after as we go. But no matter what, what we see, the reason I've called the sermon of guilt in men is because we're seeing an incredible picture of how we are to respond to guilt. Because David is a man who's wrapped with guilt at this point. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go. So if we do, we're going to see three ways that we are to respond to guilt or can to respond to guilt. We can reject it, we can wallow in it, or we can overcome it, okay? And each, there's a character in the story of each one that embodies each one. So let's walk through those three things. We can reject guilt, wallow in it, or we can overcome it. So the first one is reject it, and that is Joab. Joab is a man who, I've read so much of Joab, I actually love the character of Joab because he's fascinating. And he's a guy who is a hyper-pragmatist, a good man to have on your side, but he sees the world as black and white. There seems to be, he never, he's not like, he, he's almost like Superman from the 1950s. He never has a bout of moral conscience, right? It's always, this is right, this is wrong, I'm going to do it. And Joab has his own system of what's right and wrong, but he clearly says, this is what the rule is, here's what the goal is, I'm going to do it no matter what. And he's brutal in carrying it out. So, let me give you some examples of this, how pragmatic he is. When in war, he is fighting with Saul. Remember when David, he was fight, helping David fight Saul. And Abner, the leader of Saul's army, kills Joab's brother. Joab, despite the fact that he's not supposed to, goes and butchers Abner. Now, his brother died in a war. That's kind of okay. It's legal. You're allowed to kill in a war. That's the point. But he goes and murders Abner. Why? Vengeance is right. Doesn't matter what my king says. People who kill my brother will die. And he, there's no bout of conscience with Joab. He then gets a message later from David saying, kill one of your best officers, Uriah. Joab doesn't say, but why? He says, okay, I'll kill him. He never questions it. Orders are orders. Kill the man because the king said so. I could see him at Nuremberg. Wouldn't have gone over well. Orders, just following orders. But he's brutal. Then he sees Absalom in a tree. And although he knows, and he says in the passage, if you read it, he says, I know. The guy's telling him, the king said not to do this. And Joab says, I'm sick of, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. And he just kills him. The reason is, rebels die. I can't let this Absalom live, no matter what he means to the king, because a rebel cannot survive if the king is going to be safe. And my job is to keep the king safe. Black and white. Then, this Cushite, or, or um, why does he send the Cushite to give the message to David instead of Ahimaaz? 
Well, because David has shown historically that he doesn't like bad news. He has lashed out and killed people before for this sort of a thing. And as a result, if there's going to be a violent outburst from David, let it be the no-name guy from Cush, not the son of the high priest who's going to get killed. So he's practical again. Let's think practically. This news shouldn't come from a friend. It should come from a messenger, a stranger, according to Joab. Then he, I think, shows us his character more than any other thing he says in all of the stories of Joab from 1 Samuel right through until early in 1 Kings when he is eventually killed. And he says to Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz is insistent, I want to send the news. I want to bring the news to David. And his response is fascinating. He says, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for this news? Life is a ledger for Joab. If you're not going to benefit, don't do it. Why would you give this news? There's, there's no good that can come from it. And that tells us what kind of a man Joab is. It's not about compassion. David doesn't need to hear the news from a nice friend. You're going to get hurt, so don't give the, give the news. See, he thinks so black and white about the world. Then he comes to David, and it's very simple to, to Joab. You're not thinking clearly. Your grief and your guilt, whatever it is, is stopping you from being king. Wake up. Rouse up. He's the guy who smacks you around, right, when you're in a, in a funk. Get up. You're, you have to be king. You're not just a dad. You're a king to all these people. And he's pretty harsh in the way he does it. And then he comes, and he says, you know what you have done, David, by your grief, you think you're being a good father, but as a result, all of these people, thousands of men who died for you, fought for you, thousands of women who gave up their husbands and sons and, and, and fathers are all doing this to keep you in power, to save your family from death, and you're sitting here saying you wish the rebel was still alive? Wake up! You're a king, man! So... This is Joab speaking, right? Joab's very direct, very harsh. You've shamed them. These people who should be coming into the city as triumphing because they've just saved your crown and brought stability to the land have to steal away into the kingdom like ashamed people because they think they've made you angry somehow by doing what you asked them to do. So Joab is really very direct. And he tells them in no uncertain terms, here's what you must do. You, David, think about the political situation. David has just fought a war that... Half the country wanted him to lose. Just because he's won that battle doesn't mean he's any more popular. The country still doesn't like him. And Joab is shrewd enough to say, being the pragmatist he is, David, you're very unpopular. If you lose control of the military, you're finished. So shut up, wipe off your face, stand up and address. And he says, in Hebrew it says, speak to the hearts of the troops. Encourage them. Because if you don't, they're going to revolt and you will be dead tonight. And all of it will be for nothing. So Joab is a rigorous pragmatist, right? He's the guy who will not allow you to wallow in anything. Right or wrong? We're not here to debate quite yet right or wrong. You can make up that mind. But it reminded me of something we've seen recently. Sarah and I watched a movie recently called Ghost Rider. And we've seen it before. It's basically like a modern Hitchcock kind of movie. And in it, the story, the premise is there's a guy who is hired to write the memoirs of a British prime minister. But this British prime minister is in hot water because although he's no longer prime minister, he has been outed by one of his old colleagues who has told the war crimes tribunal of the, of the UN that he tortured suspected terrorists after 9-11 to get information from them. So now this prime minister who's retired is now under fire for these war crimes. And he's, he's kind of Joab. He has a very practical view of the world. And at one point, the ghostwriter asks him about 
this, these accusations, and he gets frustrated and he blows up. Here's what he says. Do you know what I'd do if I was in power again? I'd have two queues at the airport. One for flights where we'd done no background checks, infringed on no one's civil liberties, used no intelligence gained by torture. On the other flight, we'd do everything we possibly could to make, make it perfectly safe. And then we'd see which plane the Reicharts, his, his spy, the Reicharts of this world would put their kids on. And you can put that in the book. Now, that's a practical guy. Remember 9-11? Most of us remember that. I remember it. I was working at a bank at the time. And at that moment, there was a lot of uncertainty and fear. And he is saying, listen, my job, like Joab, is to keep my people safe. And if it means I've got to crack a couple skulls in the process to keep those planes safe, then it's the right thing to do. And he then calls all of us out the collar in that, in that part, like a Joab will. If you think you're so high and noble, go to the airport and say, I want to take the flight where there was no security done and see how your morals hold up to your practicality. And all, I'm not saying you agree with him. I'm simply saying, do you see the moral challenge we have when we're faced with the Joab? We may not like Joab's methods, but there's part of him, at least part, that we say, boy, we need Joab's. But we don't need just Joab's because there's a problem. Because what, what Joab's response to guilt is, is refuse delivery. Bury it down. David, no time for guilt. Stop it. Reject it. Don't deal with it. Repress, repress, repress. Do your job. Don't worry about your guilt. Is that the right response to guilt? Well, no, not entirely, certainly. Well, not, not at all. But what is the, what, what's the next response? It's not to reject it, but then the next thing is wallow in it. And this is where some people may disagree with me, but I'm going to enjoy the emails. <laughs> David, I think David, and I'm not alone, most, most, most commentators agree, he has every right to, to mourn. He lost a son, 100%. But there's something unique about the way he mourns in this story that is different than every other time one of his sons dies. Because this is not the first son he's lost. This is the third. And this is a unique way of mourning. He doesn't respond, oh, oh Amnon, oh, Amnon. He doesn't. He doesn't respond like that even to the unborn, unnamed child that dies from the Bathsheba relationship. So what is going on? Why does he respond the way he does? So the story opens in this part anyway with him sitting at the gate waiting for news. It's kind of, I, it's almost pathetic. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, it increases, it causes us to feel pathos for him because when you, and feel sorry for him because at the gate he says, oh, it must be Ahimaaz. He must come with good news. We know, of course, he had bad news. But David being naive, who's not a naive guy generally, but in the, in the desperation he's in, he thinks he's a good man. He must have good news. That's kind of illogical, right? The moral character of a person doesn't determine what the news of the war is. So we feel for David right at the start. He wants to hear good news about his son. When the news comes, we find Ahimaaz, for all of his nobility, falters. He loses his nerve. He was so intent, intent on telling David all about what happened that when David says, tell me about Absalom, he says, you know, when I left, um, there was a confusion. I don't know what happened. Yet, a few verses before, he, Joab had said, you're not going to send any news because the son is dead. The king's son is dead. So he knew Absalom was dead. But at that moment, either out of fear for being struck down or out of compassion to not see his friend David hurt more, he backs away and says, forget it. I bit off more than I could chew. So the Cushite comes who has no connection to David, and he has no problem saying he got what he deserved. Absalom is dead, just like every rebel should get. Now, 
the response of David here is very important because when you think about the way he's responded to things in the past. Um, first, when Saul, when he heard Saul was dead, he killed the messenger. When he heard Joab was, or Jonathan was dead, he wrote a eulogy. Remember, he had that speech. It's an eloquent mourning. When he heard about Uriah dying, a death that helped him, what did he say to Joab? Don't take it to heart. This, is, this happens in war. So David is very capable of being a practical man, just like Joab at times. So in this instance, though, something different happens. Some of the things the commentators write about this is this. Here, David is deep and unrestrained and unguarded in his grief. It's his most distressed moment. One person writes, his, his grief is too elemental and desperate to be eloquent. And they're right, because in the text it says that he is deeply moved. That word deeply moved, ragaz in Hebrew, means to tremble. Meaning he gets the news and he starts shaking with, with, with anger, fear, whatever it is. So he's impacted deeply by it. He then goes up to this room above the gate, which was common to have, and he weeps alone, which is kind of sad, isn't it? It reminds me of Macbeth. After, after all this life, I should hope to have troops of friends around me. Instead, all he has is no one to mourn with. He's up there. He is mourning. He weeps alone. Not just that. In those, two, in those verses when he says, oh, Absalom, Absalom, it's in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 33, and then 9, verse 4, two verses, and on 13 occasions in those two verses, he says, my son or Absalom. 13 times in two verses. That's an incredible outpouring of intimacy and of grief. Unheard of. David has not responded this way. Remember, when the unnamed child died, what he did, he didn't mourn, it says. I'm not saying he didn't mourn. But what the text says is he prayed, he prayed, he prayed until the son died, and then he went and worshipped because what can I do now? Now all I can do is praise God. And we applauded David for that, didn't we? Now, Ab and then Amnon dies, and he mourns, but nothing like this. It says he was sorry, those sorts of things. Here, however, this is a different sort of mourning. It goes above and beyond to the point of where Joab comes and says, you're paralyzed in your grief. Why is it that in this instance, David can't get over the grief? It stops him from carrying out his calling to be king. Why does the grief and the, and the, and the impact of it hit him in such a way as to put him almost on one of, you know, the, well, you're not old enough, some of you, the records, you know, a real record player, and he'll get stuck and he'll just keep skipping. David, is, I know not many people know that anymore, but David is on that. He's stuck. This is why Joab comes and shakes him. Wake up. People are depending on you. You can't just sit here in this, in, in this state. So why is he like that? Why is he at this impasse? Why is he paralyzed at this death, but not the others? And we think, we think it's guilt. And now here's why, I, the first reason I would say it. The first thing I find right away is, it's interesting that in this moment, David doesn't cry out to God. Every other time there's a problem in the Psalms everywhere, when there's something wrong, David cries out to God and seeks God. He never cries out to God. Because what guilt does, look at the Adam and Eve in the garden, guilt causes you to run from God, not seek him. And the more mired you are in your own guilt, the more you actually don't go to God, the more you dwell on what you've done. See, David here sounds harsh. He is mourning not Absalom, but his part in Absalom's death. That's what he's mourning. He's mourning, I think, the fact that he knows what he did with Bathsheba and how that was allowed to teach his sons that you take what you want. So Absalom takes Amnon's life. 
takes the crown, takes the hearts of Israel, does it all. He then knows that his response to Tamar's rape, as we talked about last week, that response to that leads to not just the rape of his daughter, not just the death of Amnon, but the eventual exile of Absalom and the rebellion of Absalom and the death of Absalom. I think we're seeing here a man who is realizing, my goodness, I am tragically responsible for a lot of the tragedy going on in my life. And he's overcome with, with, with guilt. Now, if this is the case, he is disappearing. He's kind of drowning in his guilt. He's, um, the guilt makes us weep for our, our shame, our part in what we're seeing. One commentator, uh, Old Testament scholar named Mary Evans, she says this, the expression of David's grief was excessive and to a large extent self-indulgent. Joab's fierce denunciation of his behavior may seem harsh, but it was probably very necessary. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with that. You don't have to agree with anything I've said yet, necessarily. Not yet. You can say, well, which one's right? Do we reject and push back guilt so that we can do our duty? Or do we embrace it so much and forget duty and get stuck in this loop of grief and become paralyzed? Which one is it? Because they're dual dangers. They're both two extremes, is what I'm going to suggest. And there's a right way that we're shown in this text to overcome it. How do we move beyond? How do you find a way to accept guilt because you're guilty for things, but yet not get so stuck in it that you can't move and grow beyond it? How? Well, what's the answer? The answer is this. Let's look at the final one. Why is guilt so seductive? Why is guilt what, and I was watching a thing recently where a Catholic and a Jew were arguing over which religion makes you feel more guilty. And um, it, was, it was a comedy, okay? So, but they were laughing about how their parents tried to make them feel bad about things. And I thought, you know, why is guilt such a powerful motivator? Why is it so seductive? Why do we all fall for it? We all do. And the reason is, I think, because it is partly legitimate. It's like giving yourself half of the gospel because the gospel says you're guilty. You know, if there's doctors and nurses and pharmacists around, you know, when you go and you have an infection, they give you antibiotics. And what do they say every time? Make sure you take all of them, right? All 10 or whatever it is. That shows how many times I've done all 10. Um, I never do, by the way. I don't think I've ever finished antibiotics. I know, I know. Once you, it's, it's the sin, right? Once you start feeling better, you stop taking them. But why do they tell you to do that? Because if you don't drink it full, if you don't take it all the way, then there's a risk that it won't go away or it'll come back. So you have to take it. The problem with Christians and David here, I think, is we know the gospel, but we don't drink it all the way. We don't apply the entire thing. We take the guilt because the first half of the gospel says the wages of sin is death. You are a sinner who have gone afoul of God. You deserve to die. That is a fact. That is part of the gospel that cannot be scrubbed out of it. You are a sinner deserving to die. And we sometimes don't go beyond that. We say, you're right. You're right. We see, I see it in my life. I am a sinner. I do deserve everything. And then we get stuck in this loop because we only apply half of it. We don't take the gospel all 10 pills until the end. And if that's the case, then the reason we don't is why. Well, let's move on. Before I get there, let me say this. Let me use a story. There's a story of, of Martin Luther who is teaching a class to some students and he's um, actually looks a lot like this outside probably. And right outside the window, it's snowing, but outside there's a massive manure pile. 
outside. And he tells his students, look at that pile of manure. That pile of manure is exactly our moral situation before God. You and I are dung heaps before God, deserving wrath. About 10 minutes later, he, he, he goes on teaching after that side note. 10 minutes later, he looks and says, now look at, the, look at the dung pile, what do you see? And it's now covered in snow. And he says, now this, and this is his response to this about the new change. That is how God sees us in his son, Jesus Christ. While we remain full of sin in Christ, we are clothed with his perfect righteousness, and therefore we are acceptable in God's sight. So what Luther is saying is, you are a sinner. But that's only half the gospel. The other half is the snow. You see, guilt will make you look at the dung heap, but not at the snow. And the snow says, yes, you're a sinner, but it's covered by Christ. You no longer, you need to lament sin or, or your guilt. You need to somehow, sometimes deal with this, the fallout of your sin, which David is, but you don't need to get stuck in it. The only reason you wallow in it and need a Joab to smack you is because you've gone and not applied the snow. And for me, the best simple, another old guy, well, he's dead, really old. His name is Richard Hooker. He was a uh, 16th century um, theologian in England. Here's what he says about this, the same idea. Such we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted folly or frenzy or fury or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man has sinned and God has suffered, that God has made himself the sin of men and that men are made the righteousness of God. Very simple. The reason you and I struggle with guilt is you and I fail to accept the fact that we're actually forgiven. Remember David was told in chapter 12, your sins are forgiven? Remember Nathan said that? He said he believed it, but he hasn't applied it. It's like if you have a burn and you go to the doctor and they give you this balm and you buy the prescription, but you never apply it to the burn, then you complain that it's not getting better. You need to get the gospel and apply it to everything in your life. My work, my guilt, my shame, whatever, your ego, and everything must pass through the gospel. And when we don't do it, we end up like this. We end up with, with, with stuck somewhere. Now, where do I see that in the story? What character in this story in Samuel is this? The answer is Absalom. Think about it, I mean, very practically speaking. He is the son of the king. He is hung on a tree and killed, and when his death comes, peace is wrought in the nation. Pretty simple, isn't it? The gospel is there. The problem, of course, is his death, Absalom's death, may bring political and military peace, but it does nothing to stem the moral and existential guilt that David feels. He's still guilty. He's still struggling. He's still wallowing. And that's because he wasn't meant to die for the sins of David. But he was a type of Christ. He's one of these things, one of these people that God puts all through the Old Testament that point us to the better son of a king that will hang on a tree and die and bring perfect peace eventually. And that's the one we look to in that moment because we, we take your guilt to the cross. What we're told very simply is this. It's the only remedy, by the way. The only healthy remedy for guilt is the cross because at the cross, it is lamented. You're told you're a sinner and you must realize you're guilty and take all the shame that that comes with. But for a moment, because the moment after you realize, my goodness, I'm a sinner, that terror is ripped from you and the gospel's healing comes and says, but Christ has paid for it. And so you can face the guilt and say, I am a sinner. I am responsible for my son's death, David could say. But I have a savior. So although I need to lament it, I don't need to get stuck in it. 
I don't have to be paralyzed by it anymore. There is life beyond it because the cross says that our guilt is legitimate, but that Christ has paid for it. The only way to accept this, sorry, the only way to accept that you are, uh, sorry, well, I write my notes. I won't even look at it. My notes don't make any sense. The only way to overcome guilt is to accept the fact that you are guilty, but that somebody has paid for it. Otherwise, you're going to reject it because no one likes to, if you don't have Christ and you think you're the cause of your son's death, you're not going to get over it. You're either going to wallow in it or you're going to say, no, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Don't blame me for what he did. Don't blame me for his addictions. Don't blame me for his choices with his family and his job. I didn't do that. I had nothing to do with that. So you'll either reject it or you'll wallow and you'll never recover. You'll never get out of the guilt. The only healthy response is the cross that says you're guilty, but Christ has paid it. If you're a Christian, apply the gospel. If you're a skeptic, realize and look at your life. Look at the past. Look at human history and see we don't deal with guilt. Only one remedy has, been, has not been tried by you as a skeptic, and that's the cross. Try it. It's the only answer. Let's pray.